Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent, fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host... Eric Skwarzynski. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm sitting down with Mike Hutchinson, the host of The True Presbyterian. I was on his show a few months ago, and I brought him on to talk about something Presbyterian love, which is church history. So we're going to talk about the history of the IFB movement and um, kind of what makes these quote-unquote independent churches part of a denomination unto their own. So uh, Mike, welcome to the show. Okay, so I'll start with this disclaimer because I'm almost expecting to get nasty grams or something out of this. So anything and everything that I have to say on this subject is my opinion alone. And you shouldn't come to the conclusion that my opinion is shared by my local church or any educational institution where I have studied. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, um, in some ways there's a definition problem. Uh, the There is a moving target when it comes to defining fundamentalism, just kind of from the outset. Um, so one thing that's a, a piece of that is that culturally fundamentalism has kind of come to mean, you know, anyone that's to the right of me. And then there's the, the even bigger problem on top of that, which is like, which fundamentalism, but we can talk about it as a movement. I don't think that that's unfair at all. Well, and, the, and because, to be clear, they do. <laughs> if you, the yeah. people who have that rebuttal, I'm like, do you go to conferences? Do you ever, they talk about it as the independent fundamental Baptist movement. I didn't make up the term to talk about them. Right. Like, I'm using their vocabulary. I'm going to take about 10 minutes and give you some excerpts here from uh, the section Baptist in the 20th century. And I'm pinpointing here what history has to say about the independent Baptist movement. And I think that you can see that in a number of ways. I think the easiest place to go is to just the, the shared origins 
of the fundamentalist movements from the outset. So it kind of, the way that I come into this is, is as a Presbyterian. And now for the sake of full disclosure, I did attend a independent fundamental Baptist church for a while. I was never officially on their membership roles, uh, but I was, I was there for about three years. And so I, I have that background to draw on to an extent as well. I mean, it's certainly not as my background in the independent fundamental Baptist churches is not as deep or extensive as yours is, or as some of your other guests, but I do have a little bit to draw on. And so if you want to come at it more from the Presbyterian angle, and that is important because there is a dependence within the fundamental movement at its earliest stage on a number of Presbyterian theologians. And so you have uh, guys that are out there that are, you know, early fundamentalists that are being influenced and are drawing from influences from people like Benjamin Warfield at Princeton or Jay Gresham Machen, who was at Princeton and then founded Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. But where this really kind of explodes, uh, at least within the Presbyterian world, is that you know, you, you have a division in Presbyterianism about 1839 that's the old school, new school division. And this is a debate over how tightly we should be tied to our confession of faith. Because as Presbyterians, we have the Westminster Confession of Faith and larger and shorter catechisms. These are what we believe, teach, and confess as a church. And this is what I believe, teach, and confess, not just because it's my church's confession, but because it's my confession. And so that's kind of the, the background there. But what happens on the other side of this is that within the Presbyterian church, you have a split in 1837-ish, and then there's a reunion about 40 years later. And so you always have these two competing forces in Presbyterianism, one that is more uh, loose and free with the confession, and others that are more rigidly tied to it. Now, by the time you get to the, the origins of the fundamentalist uh, controversy, you have this controversy reaching its tendrils everywhere. So this is not just a Baptist phenomenon. And so you see it splitting denominations all over the U.S. You see it in the Baptist world. You can see it in the Presbyterian world. You can see it in other places too. I mean, it, it reaches its tendrils into Methodism as well, which is a a fun and, and unscratched piece of history that most people haven't ever looked into. But on the, on the Presbyterian side, what's intriguing, at least from, from my perspective as a Presbyterianism is that by the time you get to the, the early 1900s, Princeton seminary effectively stands alone. They're the last truly old school theological seminary in the denomination. And then in 1929, it's reorganized. And effectively, the theological modernists take control. And when they do, they run out all of the conservatives. And so J. Gresham Machen leaves, as well as a bunch of others. And, and two things come out of that. There's a new seminary, and there's a new denomination. Uh, the new seminary is Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. The new denomination is the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Well, within, I think it's three years, I'd have to take a look at my Presbyterian Church history again, the OPC splits. Because what we discover is that there are a group of people that came out that had a common enemy, but they didn't have a common theology. 
And so the denomination splits, you have the OPC, which continues, and then you have the fundamentalists themselves, which come out of the OPC and form the Bible Presbyterian Church, and they split over alcohol and dispensationalism. That sounds like a Baptist split. <laughs> well, and, and that really is in a lot of ways what it was. If you think Jesus turned water into Mogan David, you interpret scripture like a Jehovah Witness. We don't hear much preaching on it, Dr. Anderson, but I know that Jesus in John chapter 2 did not turn water into Mogan David. I know that he didn't because there's a verse in the Old Testament that says it's a capital S, it's a capital I, it's a capital N uh, to give your neighbor strong drink. Uh, so if Jesus would have turned water into Mogan David, that would have been sin and he couldn't be the sinner's sinless, supernatural, spectacular substitute. Jesus was not a bartender. That split in some ways is, it's almost a snapshot of what's happening in the larger culture. So even within fundamentalism, when this movement arises, you have almost two schools that are coexisting side by side. And so you've got folks that we would look at from a historical standpoint and call them more evangelical now in the sense of Billy Graham in the 1950s. Right. And then you've got your hardcore fundamentalists. And so that's a whole different side of kind of the movement. But the, the, the touchstone for most people is this 12 volume work that was published by Milton and Lyman Stewart called the fundamentals. Uh, I actually have a copy of it over here on my bookshelf. Um, and it is a collection of essays that are aimed at a German higher critical uh, thought or, or system of, of doctrine that was really prevalent in late 19th and early 20th century religious thought. And, and that's sort of where this starts. Um, and then by 1910, you have the the two... The, the two kind of movements that coalesce, you have the Niagara Bible Conference on one side, and then you have the uh, 1910 General Assembly for the Presbyterian Church USA. And what they arrive at in this, in the thick of this sort of controversy is like, okay, we, we, we want to be able to agree on something. So let's find five bedrock principles that we can agree on. And so the five fundamentals then are sort of coined. Uh, so you have inerrancy of scripture as it's given uh, in the original manuscripts, uh, which was the, the early position, uh, the virgin birth, the substitutionary atonement, the literal resurrection of Christ, and the historicity or the historical reality of Christ's miracles. And so that becomes sort of the touchstone for early fundamentalism. And now you can agree on those things, whether you're Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist, whatever the case may be. And that becomes, in some ways, the anchor that's intended to hold. But there are problems even with those things from the outset. Right. So, um, I mean, so obviously, so this is early, so you have late 1800s, early 1900s. So it seems like around the time that they split into two groups, that's about when trouble started brewing within the Baptist world. It was like literally 1920s, then the Baptists decided to have their own kind of 
you know, divorced from each other. And I, I, I argue now, I think that Southern Baptist Convention is about to go through a second version of this any day now with, uh, with all the chaos that's happening right now. Um, and it really seems like one side reminds me a lot of independent Baptists and one side very much is just traditional evangelical. So it's interesting that you were bringing that up because it does seem like that same split's about to happen again. But, um, so talk to me a little bit about, you know, obviously this is something every denomination goes through because there's always going to be people who, as new generations come in, the old one will say you're not being strict enough or there'll be a, a generation that says you're not being loose enough. And it's, so there's going to be disagreements about how things are done. There's going to be different opinions about how to engage the culture, how to, you know, right. I, I mean, if you look at even Baptist history, like there's been a lot of splits over like how involved do we get in the, you know, media or in this form of, mm-hmm. you know, fill in the blank. So, you're about to see the number one thing above all things I could talk about that has destroyed our testimony, that has robbed our home. You're looking at it right there. That's it, the television. And the dirty, rotten computer and all the filth that comes on that too. Ah, your wife's a cooking. You say, children, you may want to move back a little bit. And you take this thing. <laughs> you say, I hate Kevin. I hate that thing. I hate I brought you on because you've done a lot of like hardcore research on a lot of church history. I've done a lot of like, you know, my focus has been abuse. So like most of my research is, you know, 1950s, like Jack Hiles onward into that. And that's where I'm seeing the connections. And I see them connected with the tendrils of abuse. But um, I was actually reading the first time I ever actually read in a book format, any church history was in um, Jerry Massey's book, which is Schizophrenic Christianity, um, and mm-hmm. which is a very easy to read um, kind of breakdown. But she she notes 1922 um, with J. Frank Norris being the kickoff when they were denied access to the to the Southern Baptist Con- or the Baptist Central Convention. Um, and so, I what I heard, what I always heard growing up was. Um, and, and I didn't get the trail of blood thing. I never, I never heard, I never heard any of that stuff until talking to graduates of different Bible colleges. But what, what I was always taught, and it actually is fairly accurate, is that the IFB started as a response to liberalism in the Southern Baptist Convention. That's what I was always taught. It's somewhat, now that's somewhat skewed in the favor of <laughs> independent Baptists as far as what's going on, but that's what I was always taught. Um, what would you would you say that's somewhat accurate? Would you say that's completely? It's closer than what the traditional IFB teaching on their history is. I, I would say that that is accurate overall. Um, now there are there are other pieces of that puzzle though. You have the same issue in the Baptist world that you have in the Presbyterian world around that same time. So you have kind of a convergence of multiple streams uh, historically and theologically that are going on. Um, so you've in the Presbyterian world and in a wing of the Baptist world, there's always been a high emphasis on theological education. Right. And so you can see that, for example, with the Presbyterians, with Princeton, or Princeton University. And they Princeton kind of cornered the market Seminary. on that stuff for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then in the Baptist world, you can see that with the, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which originally was in Greenville, South Carolina. It has not always been in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, it moves to Louisville after the Civil War. Even Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, the men who founded it were all graduates of Princeton Seminary. Right. And Southern Seminary was built on the Princeton model. At the same time that you have this uh, 
seriousness where it comes to theological education, you have another wing that places um, experiential piety kind of at the heart of what it is that they're about. And, and by the time you get to 1920, you have these streams that are at war with each other. And then there's other pieces, right? So you do have this influx of theology that's coming out of the European continent beginning in the 1850s that's now reaching a very much a fever pitch in most of the seminaries in the United States. And so, yes, the schools have been overtaken at this point by people that don't hold to the, the commonly held theology of the church to that point. And so that is an issue, but then you have these competing movements on the other side. And so fundamentalism is a, is a strange historical thing that most people haven't dug into deeply. I think that the best, the best two histories of it are going to be George Marsden, uh, fundamentalism in American culture. Uh, and actually, a, a professor at Bob Jones University has done an excellent history of fundamentalism, which in some ways I'm surprised that he's been able to stay on the faculty there, given how intellectually honest uh, his work is. And that one's um, In Pursuit of Purity by David Beale. Hmm. Uh, both of those are, are good looks at um, kind of the history of fundamentalism. Beale more broadly, or pardon me, Marsden more broadly, Beale more narrowly. But it is the conver convergence of multiple streams that come out of this much larger historical current. So fundamentalism actually shows up in Romanism or Roman Catholicism, right? Vatican I, that's a fundamentalist movement. It shows up in Anglicanism with the Oxford movement. That's a fundamentalist movement. And so fundamentalism isn't something that's unique to the, the Baptists and the Presbyterians. But on this other side, right, that, that we're talking about, that's kind of this other piece of the puzzle. It's a convergence of the holiness movement, right? So there are influences there from Methodist perfectionism, uh, from the Pentecostal movement, from uh, the Keswick higher Christian life movement. Hey, there's a, I, I would say with the IFB, there's a ton of Methodist like like that I would say the closest when I'm reading historical figures or I'm looking at church history like the IFB feels much more similar to Methodist theology in a lot of ways than any other large you know religious movement you can think of yeah that there is a there is a very heavy influence there and you can see it in reading some of you know like even modern fundamentalists have lots of really nice things to say about John Wesley and so that, that influence is there. And so you can see that show up in the independent fundamental Baptist world in the hymns that they sing, right? So um, my, my favorite, most hated hymn, like the one that makes me just want to tear out my hair every time I hear it is I come to the garden alone. Right? so, you know, and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I am his own and the joy we shared as we tarried there, none other has ever known. I mean, that's, that's right out of this holiness, uh, Keswick, higher Christian life sort of background now that your individual experience of Jesus you know, none other throughout the entire history of the church, all the way back to the apostles has ever known mm -hmm. the experience that you have with Christ. Uh, you can see it in the, the phenomenon of uh, rededicating your life to the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if you grew up in fundamental circles or, or Baptist circles, even you guys know that, you know, if you go to youth camp at some point, 
you know, you, you have to get saved again. Right. Uh, oh, yeah. I've been saved your, a lot of times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Throw out your Cademan's right. call CDs, burn some books. I mean, something along those lines, that has to happen. Uh, and then you have this show up in kind of the carnal Christian doctrine. And so there's this, this idea that, you know, there's a, some sort of spiritual crisis, and then that leads to justification. And then there's a second crisis. And then that's where this higher Christian life of holiness and sanctification comes from. And, and that may not be stated as explicitly as you'll find it in some of the Methodist movements or some of the Keswick movements, but it's there as this sort of, you might say almost like an underground river that's flowing under a lot of the practice. That's an interesting way to say it is being a, there's a lot of subliminal theology in IFB churches in the sense of, you know, because I would say, and, I, and look, I've, I've traveled across the country to IFB churches, even I've sat in Sunday services in, you know, probably 13 different states. I've been in several mm-hmm. different churches and the, the they are all very similar. And even in the style of preaching, there's a couple that stand out where they have some more theological depth or so on, but for the majority, it is very um, opinion driven, and then the theology is very subliminal. So they may never teach explicitly on what their, um, you know, their doctrine of the end times. They may never teach explicitly on what you know, like you said, like you know, the idea of being a carnal Christian. They may never give you theolo- but they will just use those buzzwords to manipulate what their point is that they want to get across. So you may never yeah. truly hear like, here's how we believe, like here's our eschatological map of what we think it looks like. What does, you know, the book of revelations actually teach, but they will mm-hmm. talk about, you know, if the rapture happens tomorrow, don't you wish you walked the altar tonight? It's that kind of, right. you know, it's these terms you kind of know, like for me, like I was like, well, I know that there's some like scary stuff about that, but I wouldn't have been able to say like, Oh, you know, this is where it lays out in my faith, you know, right. the same thing with their doctrine of hell, like the doc, their doctrine of hell. I mean, and there's a, there's actually a film that Jack Kyle's um, was involved in about hell. Um, I don't know. I'm assuming you've seen it based on the smile on your face, but like the amount of weird stuff that's in that movie that is not oh, yeah. connected to anything within scripture is really weird. It's just like a hodgepodge of, yeah. you know, hodgepodge theology is kind of how they structure things. Um, except for some rarities, like the guy you mentioned from Bob Jones. There's some rare where they actually have some kind of theological understanding. Like Bob Jones is one of the few IFB colleges that actually is intellectual in how yeah. it, you know, in how it looks at stuff. Now, them dealing with abuse has not been so pretty, and them dealing with racism mm-hmm. has not been pretty. But when it comes to theology, they are actually pretty intellectually honest with a lot of what they put out. Versus, you know, yeah. some of these other colleges where it's let's learn about the great men of faith from 40 years ago and duplicate, right. you know, so. Yeah. So, so that, that holiness movement is one side of fundamentalism. And then there's another stream. That's the revivalism piece of it, where you have the altar calls, you have this really theatrical preaching. I'd wake up in the middle of the night thinking that the roof was leaking, but it was my mom pouring salt on my life. My wife, I've seen her get up and sing with the power of God on her life. 
I've seen as a kid, when I got into college, I've seen Larry Brown get up with that power and the unction of God saying, here you go, boy. Get as much as you want. You can be salty for the glory of God. too." And you have the sort of camp meeting phenomenon, which you can trace back to the original camp meetings at places like Cane Ridge. And then you have the the really early stream of fundamentalism that's there, um, which is you know your guys from about 1920, uh, where there is this this very and these are coming out of things like uh, you know these revivalist roots that go all the way back to George Whitfield and some others. And you also have, you know, the, the prophetic conferences that were going on prior to the formation of the, was it the World Christian Fundamentals Association in 1919. And then as things move forward in the 1920s and 1930s, you have the fundamentalist modernist wars that are going on within the mainline denominations. Right. And those are the historic denominations that have been in the United States from the very beginning. Uh, mainline I don't know if this is true. This may, in fact, be uh, you know one of those things that just kind of entered the ether. But the story is that they're called mainline denominations because they were the big steeple churches that you found on Philadelphia's main line. It sounds cool, at least. <laughs> yeah, but and it and it does get to the fact that these were the churches that were at the center of American civic life uh, up to this point. And then in 1930. Through about 1950, that's when you're really seeing the fundamentalist exodus from the main line. Um, and then 1950 is where things start to shake up within fundamentalism in a major way, because you've got this crazy young preacher uh, out of Charlotte, North Carolina, named Billy Graham, who at this time, you know, has got the hair slicked back and he's doing the full tilt machine gun delivery and his preaching. I mean, he is a yeah, he is a card-carrying fundamentalist at this point. Uh, he was educated at Bob Jones, you know, well, at that time, Bob Jones College, uh, which was here in Tennessee then. That was before it moved to South Carolina. Bob Jones was Methodist, no? The, the- I, I, I don't know. Yeah, so in, in some ways, he's a, he's a movement unto himself. I do know that there's Methodist family for him. Uh, but I don't know that if you had asked him in 1925 if he was a Methodist, what he would have said. He said, I believe um, the Bible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's probably what he would have said. As no. well. you know, I but just believe the Bible. But even, so like Billy Graham is something that I, I see him being, even now he's a divisive figure within fundamentalist circles. I would say in larger evangelical circles, not so much. I think he's generally respected by most. But within fundamentalist circles, there's a lot of, especially in the latter end of his life, but we don't have to dig into all of that. But but in his, his early you know, career, if you want to use that word, he was very accepted by the majority and obviously was one of the most beloved evangelists of all time. But then within fundamentalist circles, like he's cited as either someone that brought people together or completely ripped apart, like Falwell, Jack Hiles, all of these guys. It was around that period where that started segregating fundamentalists about, Mm -hmm. do we allow this guy or do we, do we endorse this guy? And in the beginning, a lot of them did. In this day and hour, there are two men who get a big response to every invitation. I'm going to surprise you right now. The first is Billy Graham. He gets a big response to every invitation. Am I right? You watched him. 
I mean, a lot of people come forward. I'll surprise you when I tell you that a second man is giving invitation and getting a big response is Jimmy Swaggart. That's right, Pentecostal Assembly of God. Huh? I know him. Jimmy Swaggart. And uh, Jimmy's not a Baptist. He's a gentleman. I, I got to say that because I know, th I know this for a fact. I know what he does. But he gives the invitation. If you watch him on TV sometime, he gives the invitation, you'll see the people streaming forward. I mean, they come. They come. And uh, that's his way. And he preaches. Uh, he's one evangelist of the Pentecostal group that actually stands up and just pray, plain preaches. He hits sin, condemns sin, and talks about the Lord, the Savior, and stays on the line. Now, I know he's different from our Baptist view, but in other words, he's doing it. Now, these two men give invitation, public invitations that are responded to. But it was, mm -hmm. you know, we can get into that. But I, I think a lot of it was they saw, especially for a guy like Jack Hiles, I think when you really dig into it, I think he saw someone doing what he wanted to do much bigger than he was doing it. Mm -hmm. I think that was a big motivator in that kind of pushback. Yeah. And, and so a big piece of that is that by 1960, so before I get there, let's keep in mind that when, when Billy Graham drops out of Bob Jones, Bob Jones Sr. tells him, if you leave Bob Jones, you'll be so outside the will of the Lord that you'll never amount to anything more than a barefoot, backwoods, hick country preacher. So, so he wasn't a prophet. Already... <laughs> so, again, so Bob Jones wasn't a prophet then. Yeah, <laughs> not by a long shot. Um, so even at that early date, you can see this controlling, uh, sort of smothering aspect of fundamentalism has already appeared. It's already there. It's in some ways, I think that it's baked in, in a particular stream. And I think that you can in some ways trace a lot of it back to someone that you've already mentioned, which is J. Frank Norris. I think that that guy in some ways is the, is the dark shadow that is cast over the history of fundamentalism. Um, but by the time you get to 1960, Billy Graham has started to explode. Right. Um, and, and he becomes the trigger for what I would call the, the fractured f fundamentalism that exists now, because you're right. The big debate becomes, do we endorse or do we not endorse? And the, the issue, of course, is that he's making common calls uh, with, with liberal churches yeah. and with uh, groups that, I mean, even in the Presbyterian world, there are a lot of us that would deny our churches outright. Uh, so, for instance, the, the Roman communion. Uh, you know, there's, there's an ongoing debate in Presbyterianism going back to the 1830s about whether or not uh, their baptism should be considered valid. And so there are deep theological reasons to have suspicions about making common calls with some of these groups. But then you have another side of that puzzle that's going, hang on, wait a minute, this guy's proclaiming the gospel. And so like, if we can't unite around this, what can we unite around? Um, and, and so that becomes the, in some ways, the trigger. And then at the same time, you have guys like Carl Henry, uh, who in some ways is the founder of the modern evangelical movement as you and I know it. He, he uh, creates the, the modern version of the magazine Christianity Today. Uh, you have Fuller Theological Seminary in California. All of these organizations are trying to regain uh, a certain amount of the respectability 
that historic uh, confessional or conservative Christianity had up to 1930. And so there becomes this parting of the ways where the evangelicals come out and what we would recognize as evangelicals today dissociate themselves from what is now this modern fractured fundamentalism. So that, that is kind of the, the big picture. That other stream, I think, and, some, and, and of course, I, I'm coming with my own bias to this. Right. And so, so you, you have to take some of this with a grain of salt. That anti-intellectual stream has born really poisonous fruit. And that's not to say that there have not been problems that have come out of the more intellectual side of the equation either. So as you've already mentioned, I mean, if, if you're going to go to a fundamentalist college, uh, you know, Bob Jones is the best of a bad lot, right? And so you're going to get a decent education there. But let's be clear, it's the best of a bad lot. Well, and it produces like even the, the methodology it still duplicates that to some extent. And that's where you it see, really does. you know, I mean, Bob Jones produced guys like John MacArthur and John MacArthur, mm-hmm. as far as, you know, the, as far as dispen- I, I still have a lot of respect for John MacArthur. He said some things in the last couple of years that I just, I'm again, it makes me think that, Oh, you did come from Bob Jones university. There's some things he said yeah. where, you know, I have a hard time like me saying that right now, is going to have some people say like, oh, do you agree with everything John MacArthur says? You know, But again, John MacArthur, in a lot of ways, I think has, as far as his work with the Bible, has done a lot of amazing work. His his commentaries outside of the ones that deal with some prophecy, I think are, are very good. Um, you know, and I've, I've learned a lot through him. But again, when I step back and like the more I read of like, you know, John Calvin, or the more I read of someone that's not, you know, coming from that more recent kind of exodus of that world, you could definitely tell that there's a lot more of emotion and, you know, American cultural impact mm-hmm. on his teaching than there is, like, you know, that's why I love, that's why I started drifting more toward an R.C. Sproul or to someone like, is because he was teaching based off of, yes, church history, but it was not church history dated back 30 years. He was teaching off of theology, not theology that had been refined over the last 30 years. It was, where can we look? And he did have things he disagreed with mainline Presbyterian churches about all the time, but he would still examine things within that cultural and historical context versus even the best out of Bob Jones, like they're basing it off of, you know, well, what I learned while I was there and then just building on that. You know what I mean? And that's that's something for me as a Baptist, like that's where I look at Presbyterian churches and, and even even some friends I have that are Catholic in certain is like they have a lot to back up what they're saying versus, you know, for me it was, well, my pre as my preacher said, you know, or as yeah. preacher so and so used to say, and then going back and you know, like the furthest most of these guys go back is saying like and I remember what Jack Hiles when he you know, it like it doesn't go past that. There's two men. You go into my office. Here's my desk to my right. There's a picture of my pastor who's in heaven. Pastor Brother Hiles, Dr. Jack Hiles, my, well, I was my pastor and dear friend and, and director for many, many years. And his picture's right there. Down on the desk next to it is a picture of Brother Hiles and a poem, Don't Quit. And he's been an influence on my life. Rarely would a day go by when I don't think about him, remember something he taught me, read something he wrote, listen to a sermon. You see, you need spiritual leaders. 
Unless you, except yeah. for when you have the dubious claims of, you know, well, John the Baptist. Look at John the yeah. Baptist. The first, the first one we see, the first denomination we see mentioned is the Baptist. <laughs> you know, like yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's, I think that's one thing where you get a leg up is, you know, church history, I believe, is important to understanding our, you know, understanding the framework of theology. Like there's been years and decades and centuries of thought put into these documents, you know? Yeah. And, and that's where I think the anti-intellectualism shows up in some really funny ways. Um, so, you know, I mean, even like the, the largest irony for me is that you, you know, you go to a passage like first Timothy four thirteen, right? I mean, Paul takes the life of the mind very seriously Right, and that's shot all through his, um, you know, all through Paul's letters in the New Testament. But you don't see fundamentalists producing systematic theologies, right, or detailed books, for example, on the person of Christ, or major studies on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, I'm sure that there are some exceptions out there, especially earlier on. But in many ways, but, you can't. The way yeah. that they've structured themselves, it would be disingenuous for them to do it. And I think they would understand the irony of, you know, we're all independent. It's all based on what me and my Bible says. And then I teach it to my right. church. I think they understand like, oh, we still need, they still understand the need for like community and getting together as churches. But it would right. look, I cannot imagine Treber, Paul Chapel, those two guys alone sitting down in a room and saying like, let's work on just writing out our systematic theology. Yeah. It would never happen because they've divided yeah. themselves too much. Or, or even if they could, that it would be anything resembling coherent. Right. I would, it would actually be funny to have them all write one and then just layer them on top of each other and see yeah. what, what, how many variations there are. And, and in some ways, like I said, I think that's really baked into fundamentalism when the five fundamentals are formed. Right. So your five fundamentals, again, inerrancy, virgin birth, substitutionary atonement, resurrection of Christ historical reality of Christ's miracles, right? Um, all important things, okay? So for my conservative friends that are listening to this, I don't deny any of those things. At the same time, there's some things there that are missing. Right. What about the Trinity? Yeah, I think any, any, any actual biblical theology stems in those main doctrines. Like, I, yeah, I, would, I, I would have a hard time, like, Greg Laurie would agree with that. You know, Billy Graham would have agreed with that. And then also R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, anybody you want right. to plug in. But that leaves open a lot of room to do a lot of other things. <laughs> like, right. Well, as I, like I just mentioned, the Trinity isn't even included there. So I could deny the most central and significant doctrine of the Christian faith and be a fundamentalist if the five fundamentals are all you've got to go on. And so that's how you wind up with this weird trail of blood thing right? And that you've been talking about. And that's um, a book that was published by a guy named J.M. Carroll uh, back in 1931. In, someone, in some ways, that book, I think, is, is the symptom. Like, if you want to see what the disease of anti-intellectualism looks like, go look at The Trail of Blood. That's a glowing review of someone's book. If you want to see the, the fruit of anti-intellectualism, just read this book. Yeah, well, I mean, so the thesis is effectively that Baptists are the original church, that they belong to a separate stream of Christianity that's distinct from uh, the the Roman communion and that's distinct from the Reformation, and that the Baptist church is the true church because the true church is always persecuted. And therefore, these persecuted groups, they had theology that 
similar to Baptist theology in some areas. So this must be, you know, the true church. Well, then that leads the author of this book to include groups in, you know, as true churches that the church for 2000 years has recognized as heretics. Right. Right. So he wants to include the Donatists. He wants to include the Cathari. He wants to include the Paulicans. And so the, the disease is anti-intellectualism, but the symptom is an inability to do anything like research that, that, or, or to do anything like producing something that's, that's historically grounded. And so the result of all of this appears in the church as you can't question the man of God. And that is a, that is just a, that is begging for abuse to start appearing. Yeah. Well, that's, so, that's one of the foundational principles of a cult is you cannot question yeah. the authority above you. you right. Know. Or the, the other way that you might see it crop up is you can't read anything outside of our tradition or you shouldn't read non-fundamentalist authors. Which is um, what they criticize and, the Catholic Church for. <laughs> right. Uh, so it, there's there's this weird inconsistency that's baked in. I think the potential for abuse is baked in right out. And I think that that is not only a fruit of anti-intellectualism. I think there are other things that go on there, but I think that is a fruit of anti-intellectualism as well as some other things. So when you you know, take that and you couple it with the absolute obsession with, you know, well, as so-and-so said, you know, for, and, and, or you trace it back to J. Frank Norris, let's be clear, J. Frank Norris got away with murder. Literally. I'm not saying that figuratively. J. Frank Norris killed a man in the office of his church and got away with it. Okay, and and again, if you go back and you look at what was going on at that point historically, there's not really a good case to be made that he was innocent, right? This was straight up murder. And so when you have these sort of mega personalities that everything begins to revolve around, and then these mega personalities produce schools. So you have Bob Jones producing Bob Jones University. You have Jack Hiles producing Jack Hiles University. Or you could go to Pensacola Christian College. Wherever you look, you have these mega personalities. And one of the things that appears anytime that happens, whether it's in fundamentalism or outside fundamentalism, when that sort of obsession around a central personality appears, a almost inevitable result is that whatever quirks exist in that guy's personality or in the way that that guy preaches or in the way that he uh, pastors his particular church are going to become amplified to a greater and greater extent in each successive generation that he produces. And so quirky things, here's a great example. Um, So some uh, quirks that were only slightly apparent in Mark Driscoll's theology and practice explode 10 years later. And then we see guys that were really deeply influenced by Mark Driscoll that are now even heavy hand, even more heavy handed than he was. Right. And so one of the, one of the wisest things that I ever had any professor tell me was that, you know, if you take a snapshot of your church as a minister, five to seven years in to your time there as the pastor, Whatever is wrong with your church is what's wrong with you. 
because by five to seven years, you have so influenced that group of people that the flaws in your character and in your personality and in your theology are going to start to appear in your own church. Mm. And so what you have in fundamentalism is that writ large. Yeah. And so can we call this a, a movement? Absolutely. Right. Because, you know, whether we want to admit it or not within fundamentalism, you're tracing your history back to the same men. Right. And their idiosyncrasies are showing up in the next generation. And then their own idiosyncrasies are doubling are being down. added to that. Right. Yeah. And then that's amplified. And then it just continues and continues and continues. The problem, though, downstream is, is the question of how do you measure influence in a movement that is as fractured as fundamentalism is? Because at this point, it's so fractured that if you went to Johnny Smith in Boone, North Carolina, and said, so I've listened to 700 of your sermons, and these are the influences that I hear in your preaching there's a really good chance that he's going to look at you cross-eyed because if you, if you have the, the ability to identify those influences, tracing them back beyond 50 years, you're going to start dropping names that this man's never heard of. Yeah. And so that's, that's one of the central issues that I have remained stuck on as I've listened to your podcast, particularly, and as I've talked with some folks that I know, uh, that are more recently out of fundamentalism and some that have been out of fundamentalism for, for 20 years. I, I just, I don't know how to accurately measure influence in that environment. So, Hiles. I, I don't know. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a bizarre, it is a bizarre thing to try to figure out. I mean, and it's one of those things where like, if you told me to sit down on paper and write out the tenets, like I could write out some things and like people have, I mean, even, you know, people have tried to write out, but again, when you're trying to say what percentage of, you know, cause Jack Kyle seeped into all of these places. There is some, it's some part of him in all of these different churches and schools, but even, even the ones that say he's not, he's there. But again, it's hard to be like, what percentage of Lancaster Baptist Church in Lancaster, California is Jack Hiles in Hammond, Indiana? Right. What percentage is Bob Jones University? What percentage is, um, you know, Jerry Falwell, like Jerry Falwell early, early on, you know? And so yeah. when you, when you look at all this stuff, like there's a lot of Billy Sunday stuff that seeped in, ironically, to a lot of these places. America needs a tidal wave of the old time religion. America needs to be taken down to God's bathhouse and the hose turned on her. And the time isn't far distant when the wheels of God's judgment are going to go sweeping through this old God-hating world. And I want to take a pledge in this audience to join me in a pledge that you will never rest until this old God-hating, Christ-hating, whiskey-soaked, Sabbath-breaking, blaspheming, infidel, bootlegging old world is bound to the cross of Jesus Christ by the golden chains of love. But then again, like when you talk to survivors, and some of you probably know this on the show, like I can talk to somebody in Hawaii, in Indiana, in Georgia, and they all have the same type of leadership, the same type of theology that they believe, the same, you know, we could all sit down, like I could walk into a church and identify in the first 10 minutes, like, oh, this is an IFB church. 
But if you said to like, hey, I'm a complete stranger to the movement, can you just write it out so I can know if I want it? It would be kind of tricky in some ways. In some ways it would be very, very simple, so. but in other ways it would be very tricky because they are such a weird, like, there's these very weird, like you said, idiosyncrasies. Like there's these very weird things that may not be in some of these churches that are in others, even though they share common tenets overall. Um, yes. But I think what you did, and, and you mentioned this when we, we did the podcast on, on your show, is a lot of it is Bible college. And, and yes. within, and I think that's kind of the crux of like how you can see the movement spread out, mm-hmm. um, is you can look at what college they came from and it instantly makes sense. Like a Pensacola yeah. guy and a West Coast guy look very different, mm-hmm. even though they share a lot of things. And Pensacola is really, I think, intentionally moved itself away from a lot of the fundamentalist craziness. Um, I don't know why that, I, I don't know if it's like a financial reason that they're doing that or if it's what the reason yeah. is, but Pensacola's mood, Bob Jones is starting to pull itself into more of the John MacArthur camp, I think a little harder. Like they're trying to lean more into the reformed kind of, they're trying to tip their toe into the reformed world anyway. Yeah. There's, there's some interesting stuff there just in and of itself. So like Jack Hiles had and has almost zero influence at Bob Jones University. Well, I think they would look at him as anti-intellectual. I think they would look at him as, you know. Right. And and Hiles considered Bob Jones to be leftist and compromised. Which is so funny right? when you look at Bob Jones. Right. And, and then Tennessee Temple, which is now closed, but was at one time here in Chattanooga where I'm at. So Tennessee Temple University was too Arminian mm. for Bob Jones University. Yeah. But Bob Jones University has also had Calvinist purges yeah. where Calvinist professors were run out of the institution. And then you had Pensacola Christian College, which hated Bob Jones for its liberal stance on the, uh, on the text of Scripture because they were non-King James only. And Pensacola accused Bob Jones University, I kid you not, this is my favorite quote in history, of modernistic old Princetonianism, right? And and it's like, I'm surprised, to be perfectly frank, that you could string those words together in a sentence. Right. Because that is, like, those two things don't belong together. Modernism and old Princeton couldn't be more different. And so... There, there's, there are a lot of those pieces. And then like Jerry Falwell and Jack Hiles. Well, if you want to draw the connection between Jerry Falwell and Jack Hiles, where do you go to do that? Because you can't do it within their own lives. You'd have to go at least a generation back. But it is there. Yeah, it, it is there. So does that come in because, and again, this is a legitimate question. I don't know the answer to this. One of Falwell's biggest mentors was a guy named George Beauchamp Vick. Um, and so was Vic influenced by Hiles? I, I don't know. He possibly was. You know, GB Vic was, I can't think of the guy's name, but he was really closely related to, um, one of J. Frank Norris's successors. Not John R. Rice. No, 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 not John R. Rice. John R. Rice is the sort of the Lord end of, of fundamentalism. But Rice did have a connection uh, to Norris though. Yes. Yes. But in, in fairness, proving this is the, <laughs> this is the difficulty. But th- but this is the thing where um, I think what I'm seeing, and I think I'm seeing it now being out. But I'm seeing guys who are in in the world, and I'm just curious if you agree with this. And, and we've hit on like the biggest, you know, Achilles' heel problem within the independent circles 
is that lack of accountability and structure where there is mm-hmm. no ability to what what I'm seeing and you may disagree but what I see is a lot of individuals trying to do their own reformation by themselves and trying to pull this you know like and basically just take the good things they liked and then run and start. So you'll see guys, you'll see a Hiles guy and a Pensacola guy be like, well, I hated this about my college. I hate this about my college. Yeah, well, we, we hate the same thing. Let's start a place. And it starts this very convoluted kind of ministry. You know, like mm-hmm. my, my church growing up, there were guys who were West Coast who were very hardcore on some things. There were guys that were Pensacola that were very hardcore on other things. There were guys from, um, our pastors from Hiles, which considering he's from Hiles was, is like a really nice guy, which is like, I'm always like, well, at least got the, the the easiest version of that that we could have gotten but but again right. it was all these guys and they all had problems with the prior places but they also still had some of the weird things but our our mm-hmm. church growing up doesn't look like I can't look at our church and be like well, that looks like a Hiles church or it looks like a West Coast knockoff or it looks like a um right. you know Pensacola it was its own weird thing that had weird characteristics from all of them. Um, and, right. and I guess where I'm getting is I see that happening now where I see the new independent Baptists. Um, not yes. so, so you have the new IFB and then you have the new independent Baptist. So you have the new IFB, which is like Steven Anderson and all those wackos, um, which I think everybody's united against. Oh, those horrible, horrible days when women had no right. Right. Let's bring them back. Let's get back to those days. What are you so worried about? What do you think they mean when they say women's rights? You know what they mean? The right to divorce your husband is what they mean. You know what they mean? The right to rebel and disobey your husband. The right to divorce him. The right to go out and get a job and make your own money. The right to tell him what to do. The right to go vote for our leaders as if women should have any say in how our country is run. When the Bible says that I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man but to be in silence. I am quoting the Bible right now. But it's old-fashioned. Why do you think that women were not allowed to vote until the 20th century? And yet if I get up and say, I don't believe women should vote, because if we're in a democracy which is ruled by the people, I don't want to be ruled over by women. And when the founder of our nation, John Adams, one of the key founders, one of the authors of the, 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 the type of government that we have in the Constitution and the bicameral legislature and all of it, the one who laid that out, his wife told him, hey, we, you need to put something in there that women should be allowed to vote. And he said, you know what? He said, I'm not going from the tyranny of England to the tyranny of women ruling over me. He said, I'd rather have England rule over me. You know, I'm paraphrasing. But, that, you know, he said something like that, okay? Look it up. He said something similar to that. Um, but then you also yeah. have the new independent Baptists where you had, you know, a few years ago, Josh Tice out of Vegas was kind of leading that charge of like, we need to be, basically, it was the call to, you know, we appreciate the theology of the old IFB, but we need to realize like all the standards were man-made. So mm-hmm. essentially, not to belittle or diminish what they were doing, but I saw a lot of guys who left just because they still, they still, I'm trying to be careful I say this because I have friends who are <laughs> associated with this, but essentially the doctrine didn't bother them. The fact that their wife couldn't wear pants or they couldn't go to movies was a big driving force. I'm not saying that for Josh Tice because I think Josh Tice actually has tried to study out. Um, and he doesn't identify as independent Baptist at all anymore um, based on right. my conversations with him. But again, and then you have another little bit of those people that are influenced by guys like J.D. Greer. They coined that term gospel-centered 
which I think in a lot of ways has been a good thing. I've seen it have a very positive influence. But you see other guys who are like, okay, the IFB, what can we take that's good? But also they miss the gospel. Like they misunderstood the gospel fundamentally. And so like I have a very good friend who's a pastor who that's where he's at. Like I'm still an independent church. We still baptize people like Baptists. But I understand that our theology of salvation and sanctification was completely off base of what Mm. biblical theology is. So, Mm. but again, that's one person influencing their own church. And I see him still try to be friends with these guys who are still in this, you know, movement, but without any kind of group coming together, like there's not going to be any kind of shift. I think that independence is hurting. And and I noticed that I, I told my dad that when I was in high school, as I said, isn't it weird or no, it was right out of high school because I started watching debates and things. And I said, Dad, I never even knew people debated the Bible. Like, I never knew that a college would host someone who's not King James only to debate King James onlyism right. Because it didn't happen. And mm-hmm. I've said it on the show a million times. Like, people are probably sick of it. But, like, truth has nowhere to hide. If two people sit up there and debate the truth, if someone's earnestly looking for the truth, the truth is going to rise to the surface. Like, that's how debates, that's, that's what a good debate should do. And so when you have guys who are doing these one-sided, basically, you know, a Jack Hiles saying, well, John MacArthur's wrong on the atonement, and he blasts him from the pulpit, you know, that's that's where you get that separatism versus mm-hmm. why didn't Jack Hiles ever call John MacArthur and say, come out, let's have a debate about the your view of the atonement. <laughs> you know what I right. mean? Like, And I think that would have been so much more helpful for the body of Christ as a whole, you know. Right leaving aside whether or not we think Jack Hiles was part of that. <laughs> but, yeah. but you know, that would have been more helpful for the people in the churches as well. Because what you saw was personality conflicts. It was Mars Hill every, you know, to mention Mark Driscoll again, like it was Mars Hill times several thousand, all yeah. happening on their own across the U.S. with nobody to say you're out. Nobody mm-hmm. to say you're stepping over. When, when Jack Hiles told John MacArthur from the pulpit, you know, I, I want to take you to the mercy seat and rub your nose in the blood of Christ. Enjoy yourself, John MacArthur, with your bloodless gospel. You'll see that blood when Sunday comes. And I'm going to take you myself to the mercy seat in heaven. I'm going to show it to you, and if Jesus let me, I'm going to rub your nose in it. Any pastor and any 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 institution with any sense of honor or respect for who God is would have said, you are out. Like, you're not going yeah. to say, not only is that disrespectful to another pastor, that's incredibly blasphemous. Like, to, to speak that in that shallow of a way about the blood of Christ, mm. he would have not been allowed to speak in front of a megachurch the next Sunday. Yeah. And if anybody on his, on his staff had any modicum of respect... They would have pulled, you know what I mean? Like, but that's the yeah. thing is it's independence gone wrong. <laughs> and we have mm-hmm. a ton of independence guys reproducing themselves at the rate that these guys were in the fifties and sixties. It's, yeah. it's not going to slow down anytime soon. And that's where you have these kind of this, this constant conflict between independence and influence, right? So it, when it's, when it's convenient to be independent, they're independent. Yeah. And, and that's a great little word for them to try and hide behind. But the reality is, like, if you, if you tried to do a, a family tree 
for lack of a better way to put it, of fundamentalism starting from you know, figures right now. What you would discover once you got back three or four generations is that you're not doing a family tree anymore. Now it looks like a spider web. <laughs> right. And so you've got influences coming in that modern guys wouldn't recognize, but they're there. And so these common influences, again, they're lurking in the background or you use the kind of the illustration I used earlier. It's like a gigantic river that's just flowing underneath the surface that they're walking over and benefit from, but that they don't recognize. And, And that independence is very damaging. And so this is not to say that we have always gotten it right in the Presbyterian world. That is to say that at least in the Presbyterian world, we have a mechanism in place to deal with somebody that goes off the rails. Right. We have a book of church order. Right. Uh, because you know, my, my pastor is a teaching elder. That's his title. The other men that sit on our session, which is the group of men that are responsible for overseeing the welfare of the church, are ruling elders, but they're all elders. Mm. And so if he starts to go nuts or come off the rails, those elders can rein him in because he's one vote among 10. Right. If the whole session goes sideways. As a church member, I have a mechanism in the book of church order that's set up for me to appeal that decision to the next higher court of church governance, which is our presbytery. That's all of the the individual Presbyterian churches, elders in a specific geographical region. So for me, that's the Tennessee Valley Presbytery. And so if if my session goes wonky, I can appeal to presbytery. And if the presbytery goes wonky, I can appeal to the general assembly which is all of the elders of the entire church throughout the country. Right. Um, and and without, without opening a can of worms, because I don't know how much this particular individual would want their information on the web, I can name a specific case in the Presbyterian world where something very similar to this happened, where a, a session was trying to deal with an issue with a church member the member of the church kind of went, okay, hang on a second. This is, this is taking a hard turn into an area that, that is not good. Um, and so they appealed it to Presbytery. Presbytery debated this issue for over two years. And then at the end of that came to their decision. Um, and, and if anyone is listening to this podcast who knows me, they're going to know this situation because it's unescapable. It's a small, small world. And in the midst of this, I actually had a conversation with uh, one of the men in that presbytery and told him then, I'm like, brother, I'm not an elder. I don't have a vote on the floor of presbytery. But as an outsider looking in, I can tell you by what I'm seeing that this is not going to end well. This is going to get appealed to our General Assembly. And it did. And I was right. It was overturned. And so the, the, both the presbytery and the session were effectively told, you got out of line, you need to go apologize and make this right. right. And so that mechanism is at least in place, right? So the General Assembly could have gotten it wrong as well, because no church government is any better than the men who make it up. Yeah. But at least the possibility exists. And so I think in some ways, that's some sort of mechanism of that nature is desperately needed. 
uh, for so-called independent churches. But then the problem with the independent fundamental Baptist world is that 99% of the pastors are so kooky that I wouldn't trust them to be able to come to. Yeah. And so ego driven, it wouldn't work. Yeah. That, that I wouldn't trust them to be able to set those things aside. And I, I, I know that that sounds insulting and I recognize that, but of the independent Baptist ministers and evangelists that I have met, I can name one, I actually take that back. I can name two that I genuinely respect. And of them, I'm pretty sure only one is still living. Yeah. I can name a handful. Yeah. yeah for me, it was Larry Winkler. Um, and, and I only knew Larry in passing. Uh, he was uh, an evangelist. And again, like I say, only knew the man in passing, but what I knew of him, he was a very respectable individual. Uh, and more recently, Stacy Schiffler. So I, I would love to sit down and have a conversation with Stacy. Yeah, I'm trying to make I that, that trying to make that happen because there's a lot of weird idiosyncrasies that he has that I'd like to talk about. Yeah, so. like to dig down on. All right, guys, thank you so much for watching the Preacher Boys podcast. That was part one of my interview with Mike Hutchinson. If you have any questions, be sure to leave them in the comments of this video, or be sure to visit the Preacher Boys website. Uh, leave a contact there social media, hit a DM, whatever you want to do uh, to connect with me. There's going to be a phone number in the show notes if you want to call and leave a question for the next episode so we can dive in and go a little bit deeper into this topic. But again, I appreciate you listening. Don't forget there is a Facebook group called the Preacher Boys Official Discussion Group. If you want to take the conversation further with other people who have passed in that world and want to discuss topics like this, it's a great place to be. All right, guys, I'll catch you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.